I'm keen to see how technology uh, merges with, with, with art. If anything, you try and switch off what you're just telling me. <laughs> as algorithms have shifted the mundane tasks away from us as humans, it's unlocked our cultural potential. How do you uh, choose this sort of profession? Humans are processing the human experience, whereas even if AI was processing its experience, it would still be AI experience. It would never be a human's experience. <laughs> Welcome everyone to the fifth episode in my audio project called the Wimbledon Warehouse of Art. I am yet again in this beautiful piece of architecture, postmodern, I'd say, of a warehouse in South, South London. And uh, I, I have the pleasure of being joined by uh, another guest today. Before I jump into the introductions, uh, just to recap what I'm trying to do with all this recording, uh, is twofold. First of all, I want to get to know what uh, artists really what gets them tick? Why do you choose what you do? Why, why get into this uh, head on and not something else? And what does it require to be a creator? Number one. Number two, I want to get the perspective from established artists on how the future is going to look like as we're seeing things like technology and digital applications of technology impacting and changing the way that art can potentially be created. I'm going to hand it over an introduction to my guest today. So without further ado, Emily, why don't you give me a little introduction to yourself? Sure. Hi. Um, so my name is uh, Emily Flurio. I am an artist at Wimbledon Art Studios, or based in Wimbledon Art Studios. Um, I have been here for a year and it is, has been a sort of step change in terms of my commitment to my creative practice that has been building over the last six years. Mm -hmm. um, but in fact, it's at the moment complementary to a sort of 20 year career working in the creative industries. So I guess you could say I'm in something of a creative transition in okay. terms of how I work. Okay. Could you give us a little bit of insight into what did you spend when you say your creative career, you've been doing that for 20 years. What was that and what was the, the uh, genesis of your creative career? So I would say like all my life, you know, for me, uh, drawing and making art and actually creative writing as well, even when I was a very small child, were a big part of, um, I guess, how I sort of process the world and how I communicate how I feel about the world and, and communicate my experience. So I would say it's kind of always been on mm. in that respect. I think that, you know, as often happens when we're sort of teenagers and, and thinking about moving into the adult world, I went and did an art foundation and then went to study fashion, which, you know, I love mm. and love now and loved then. Um, and I guess it was looking for more what I saw as maybe a vocational application of my interest in creativity. Mm. And so the last, so from there I went into actually the publishing industry and I've spent 20 years sort of building up my creative practice within publishing companies, e-commerce, um, content marketing, mm. And more recently in actual creative agencies, i.e. more sort of ad-driven agencies. Mm -hmm. And I suppose the thing that tied them all together is I often work in sort of challenger businesses and 
very digital businesses, um, but always with a view to uh, bringing sort of creative craft in that into that space. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess the 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 transition or the genesis of the transition into what I'm doing now, I, I think there are two kind of key catalysts. One is that I ten years ago had children. Uh-huh. I had twin twin boys who were ten soon. Um, and I think in sort of like going through that process of becoming a parent and also observing how children sort of grow and become, I suppose, uh-huh. I, I recognize some of myself in that as a child and also realize that actually that kind of open countenance that children have to creativity and just to, to it being a kind of an intrinsic part of who mm. they are was incredibly inspiring. Um, that said, it's also obviously there's a physicality to becoming a parent where it is very kind of like intense, like you, you're constantly on the go. And so until they're about five or six, you know, all those thoughts of what could this be were kind of slightly in arrested development. And then mm. I found myself realizing something wasn't quite right in my career in terms of the creative uh, fulfillment that I was getting out of it. So I started kind of really trying to plot lines against building up into a much more and more and more creative role. And mm-hmm. around six years ago joined a business where I was able to really unlock that creativity within the context of commercial creativity and then from that suddenly was like hang on a minute if I can do it for other people why am I not doing it for myself and so the last sort of five or so years has been really a journey of um, delving a bit more into myself and my creative practice Mm -hmm. to serve myself but hopefully others actually not just for myself um, but actually serve it in a way that starts with myself so that it can become more uh, focused and more kind of purpose-driven and more meaningful so that as I move forward, I grow as whatever it is that I do next grows. Right. So that's kind of where I'm at now is I'm still working four days a week mm-hmm. in a very um, fulfilling and inspiring job with some awesome people, doing some great creative work, yeah. commercial creative work, um, but I'm also being very mindful about reserving time to be in my studio and also practicing art every day, practicing creative writing, not necessarily every day, but more frequently. Um, And I'm just examining at the moment how to transition so that I can be giving more to myself. Okay. So I'm kind of in a, yeah, working that out at the moment. Interesting. So let's just go maybe a step back to the wording you you said earlier, uh, creative fulfillment. I'm curious to see uh, then, as you said, in the last five years, you've sort of gone into more of a transition to try and find yourself and, and, and do it for yourself rather than others for your mm. work. What is it that you get out of creating your own work that you didn't get in your Monday to Thursday job? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's it's two different kinds of creativity. I guess there's two ways we can define creativity Um one is, I guess, maybe more in the self-expression space, I would say, and one is more in the service space. And both are equally valid and equally uh-huh. important. And I think what I find is in the uh, when we pursue our commercial creative um, uh, practice is that it's, it ultimately is to serve someone else's purpose. Yeah. It's ultimately to um, help people kind of align with something that might be a brand or a of some kind whether it's a media brand or a consumer brand or whatever that might be and I I guess what I felt was what you're essentially doing is you're applying your kind of ability to be compassionate and empathize with people began to go as like well if I 
have this uh, power. You know, I work as a creative director, essentially. So I'm heading up creative teams, delivering sort of strategic campaign work. Mm-hmm. And I just, I, I, I started to feel that, well, if I have this power of persuasion, shall we say, yeah. why am I not using that one for myself to persuade myself that I can do these things? Yes. The other is to then use that power to persuade other people they can unlock their own creativity. Okay. Because I think for all of us, we all have an opportunity to really understand ourselves better through uh, exploring our experience in ways that are not necessarily having to measure against anyone else's success system, if you mm-hmm. like. And I think art, if, if, it, if it were done in its purest form, would be that. It would be about being able to sort of process, understand, communicate, and then find connection with other people who understand something that you also see. Yeah. Because really it's about noticing. It's about looking away in a way that's unique to you and, and hoping that someone else will connect with that. Okay. Um, which is different to commercial creative work, which is obviously about deliberately trying to connect first, mm-hmm. and it's much less personal. To you. Yeah, it has to be. It has to be objective. Yeah, yeah, you have to look at it very objectively. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's still fun for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess that's just where my head's at at the moment. Okay. You know. Okay. That's that's my opinion. So so looking at the journey that you've taken in the last five years, sort of moving into this, uh, you can almost. I don't know if it's the right word, but it's a more selfish version of creating it. You're trying to create it for your yourself, finding your own way of doing art versus someone asking you to produce something. So you're producing your own, own like your own version of yeah. I think I think art. yeah. I mean, obviously, selfish is a really difficult word in the English language because word. people see it as being very pejorative. But obviously, you know everything needs to be balanced and the other side of selfishness is selflessness and I don't think you can be selfless without also being selfish it's like you can't say yes to everything you have to also say no to be able to say yes so I don't actually mind thinking of it as selfish and I would say in essence yes it is a selfish pursuit and I guess it's about um trying to give myself the oxygen to be able to understand things enough that I can then give that back to others yeah so in, in that respect it's, it's kind of more of a, a reset, I suppose. Mm, mm. What I'm noticing is you, you have a lot of different, um, well, you have similar mediums, as in it's, it's paper with something on it. Um, but the way that you, you use, the tools that you use, some of it is pencils, some of it is, is paint. Uh, there's various stages of creative projects in this room. There isn't one style. And I'm curious... Is this a representation of this journey you're going through, finding out what is your 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 creative focal point? To to some degree, I think actually I pro- I think probably my creative focal point is probably what would come out of. I guess I really believe that we kind of evolve and we shift, and so I'm not sure whether we would ever land on one style. If we're evolving, yeah, I, I guess what you're seeing in here is. A combination of kind of preparatory studies that I've done sort of out in the field if you like I spend a lot of time drawing the city and watching the interactions between the city and the people who live here and that yeah. fascinates me because that's to do all with who we are and the space around us yeah. um, and I think I've been challenged if I'm honest I've been challenging what I think I'd fall into almost already a trope of my own style and mm-hmm. I just think it's really important that if we can evolve as humans that we can also evolve how we notice. Yeah. And so I think what you probably are seeing is that my ability to notice and observe and record is definitely shifting. Yeah. So some of these are maybe 
a year, nearly a year old, and then some of these are more recent. Mm -hmm. I would also say when I'm in the studio uh, doing life drawing, which I think is a really important uh, discipline for all mm -hmm. artists, and I think all of us should be able to capture in some way the human form. Yep. They tend to become more still because they're much longer uh, poses than, for example, what I'm capturing in the city where I'm yep. trying to capture the immediacy of the energy and create multiple studies of something to be able to then come back and maybe do something like a painting, yep. Yep. which is a new thing for me. Painting and etching mm -hmm. are things that I've recently started exploring. And I've always, all my life, interestingly focused, even when I was a kid, been quite focused on dry medium mm -hmm. which is you know i think it's just because it's cleaner and you don't have to tidy it up <laughs> it doesn't involve washing things all the people who deals with poetry uh, oh. you shouldn't listen there. yeah i'm just like <laughs> I, I i think it comes from a childhood of living in quite a kind of busy household and so it's like i can't do anything that's going to add to how busy it is here now i live in a busy household myself with my children and work and everything else so i think i just i'm trying to all right you know focus on what i notice first and 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 my work is still very monotone, um, very much black and white, really. Yeah. And I'm looking at focusing on sort of studies of light and tone and shade. Mm -hmm. So I think that's where my head is at the moment. You know, like Georgia O'Keeffe said, she sort of drew in black and white until she had to add colour. Yeah. And I think I get that. It's kind of like that makes sense to me, like one thing at a time. Yes. I think as a society, but I think women in particular, we're told we should be able to multitask and do everything at once. And I think it's a fallacy that just sets us up for anxiety so i'm like i'm actually deliberately trying to slow and sort of enjoy each day rather than trying to rush ahead of myself and you know my, my feeling is i'll work it out as i go i enjoy the reflection i do think it's uh, it's um, it's a universal fallacy though when it comes to humankind i, I do mm. think everyone has the urge to feel oh I'm, i need to live the moment carpe diem and uh you constantly change your own tale. In some ways, it's a beautiful thing. In others, it's like, what, when, when, when are you at peace? When mm. are you uh, whole? Uh, and when are you resting yourself? So I, I do get that. I think it's just <coughs> important to do things that nourish you. Um, and I think art is one of those things that can really nourish you. I get you. Um, so if you think about your audience, mm. are you trying to um, convey an emotion or experience to people who see your art? I mean, I suppose probably subconsciously, yes. I would be trying to convey some form of emotion. I think we just would. I, th I don't think you could... Uh, for me, good art is about processing and noticing your world and conveying your experience, communicating something in that experience. So I don't think any artist would create work that doesn't have that sort of form of emotional connection mm -hmm. or is not attempting some form of emotional connection. I think where artists may struggle with that is where they're not quite ready to actually say what they want to say mm -hmm. and therefore the work becomes maybe not quite as connected. Quite powerful. Um, yeah, maybe not quite as powerful. It depends on the person looking at it. If, you, if we think about how many people are, many people exist in a certain level of denial, so they might quite like art that doesn't push their mm -hmm. boundaries they might like art that just looks lovely yes. for me I don't really mind what it looks like at the end so much as the process of getting to that, that end yeah you know what you said you said end and I just wanted to pick up on that word because when is one of your pieces done I think uh, it depends on what the piece is and I think I'm still slightly learning that 
But I think when it comes to a study, it's uh, certainly most of my pencil or charcoal drawings, it's like, have I got enough information to come back to that and understand what I was trying to do? Mm -hmm. So that might not all be in one piece. It may be that I might look at the same scene three times, for example, but I might capture it slightly differently each time. Mm -hmm. So I might do a much more linear capture versus a much more tonal capture as well. So I think what I've really learned particularly in the last year or so, is that drawing is a brilliant way of noticing and capturing and that you need a certain amount of information Mm -hmm. to be able to then, one, for it to be meaningful in itself, but also for you to be able to take it and do things like a painting or an etching and have enough information in that to uh, take it further and turn it into something else. And I think that's been interesting for me, having recently picked up painting, which I did dabble in as a younger person, um, and etching, which I had not tried before, is realizing how imperative it is that when I'm drawing, I'm really stopping, slowing down, noticing, because when I then come back to trying to uh, extend that into something else, mm-hmm. another form, without the information, it's much, much more challenging. Mm-hmm. Memory is important too, but it is good to have some anchors for that memory. Okay. And it's not just what it looks like, but what you remember feeling while you were doing it mm-hmm. that helps you anchor that further extension i think you're almost getting into the creative process uh in terms of what what happens when you when you make something and and this leans nicely uh in in the next question i want to get your take on so as you've been in the creative business for so long um i'm curious to get your experience with the people you work with so i assume you are surrounded by creative individuals um do you see that it takes a certain type of person to be a creative? Um, yes. I mean, I, I really fundamentally believe that every person has a right and an ability to be pursuing their creative interests and their creative path. I think in terms of whether it takes a certain person to be or become a creative um, of any form, yeah. is they that the creatives tend to be people who are prepared to sort of tap a nerve a bit more Mm -hmm. and whether that's in themselves or whether that's in like the psyche of society and culture. Mm -hmm. And I think that all of us can be that person, but it's how comfortable we feel with being inquiring, with challenging, Mm -hmm. with seeing the world in a slightly different way and being prepared to express that. Mm Because I think if if you're not prepared to say what you see, say what you feel, that's what will hold you back as a creative. Mm -hmm. So they tend to have to be prepared to be quite vulnerable. But I I would say that the people who are pursuing their own creative practice as artists in whatever form are perhaps more prepared to dig deeper into themselves Mm -hmm. and to go to sort of more difficult places in recognition that in that something will unlock Mm -hmm. i would say commercial creatives are often very interested and very kind of um supportive of the creatives who are doing like art Mm -hmm. or music or whatever that might be but i would say there is you know perhaps there are more barriers to themselves internally that stop them from actually really giving themselves permission to make art for art's sake essentially okay yeah there's a lot of ego in the creative industries Um, which I think actually holds it back from being much more interesting. Yes. 
it's a fun industry, but the, the success system is very clear. It's very delineated, yeah. which arguably isn't art as well. But I think if you're doing art for your own purpose, then it can completely release you from any of that. Okay. Or it should release you from any of that. Do you think the commercial creation is less creative in that way? I think the the thing with commercial creativity is it's not less creative. It's just that the type of creativity is different and it's much more driven by problem solving. Hmm. So you're given a challenge, you know, we need to convince X audience of Y being important in their lives. Yeah. And so you have to find a creative unlocking and that's a combination of uh, problem solving and also obviously what it looks and feels like. Yeah. So it's just a slightly different way in, whereas I think when you're pursuing essentially what you're doing is is a similar process in a way but it's much more intrinsic hmm. and so from a from an individual's point of view it's much more challenging because you have to be prepared to ask objective questions of yourself mm-hmm. notice things in yourself that maybe you've been trying to avoid okay you know and so i think it, i think that's where it becomes different is commercial creativity tends to be very sort of extrinsic mm-hmm. versus uh art or you know making your own mm-hmm. art your own creative practice which tends to be kind of driven you know by by almost problem solving but for yourself yes and that is more difficult because it's much more personal and, and it's very hard to be objective about yourself and change behaviors yeah. and change thoughts and belief systems and the rest okay. um, and be prepared to then also often step outside of what other people might see as the norm yeah the, of course. the bonus of you know, operating in a space like an art studios with lots of other people is that at least you're here with people with a similar mindset. Yeah. So you, you know, you just feel one on one. And go go <laughs> gone through some similar challenges as well. Yeah, I mean exactly. Like you know, it, it, it gives you, you know, ultimately yes, humans need to understand themselves, but I really believe that it's in our interconnectedness that is a big part of what forms us. And so actually, we do need to find people who challenge us but also understand us that we can be vulnerable and we can put ourselves out there that's a good uh, delineation between the two let's uh, look at the future first of all i'd like to get your take on your own work if we sat down for an interview in another five years say for instance Mm -hmm. um, where would you like to see your own personal creative practice be at at that stage in five years I mean I think my ambition is is that within five years that my creative practice would be the core of my everyday Um, I think what's really important for me is that I would have found a mode of sort of liberated self-expression shall we say so that that I've kind of found a way to really unlock everything that I want to try and explore Mm -hmm. through my my, uh, art and through my writing my creative writing and I think actually also incredibly important for me is that I would be using my art as a way to help other people unlock the art in themselves as well. I do think that's really important to me because I really believe that if everyone were to be able to be themselves and be open to opportunities and opportunities within themselves, that I just think we would all be in a much more still place um, in terms of contentment. Obviously, we'd still be moving forward and evolving, but we could evolve knowing that, that that's okay and that's good. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of that is inspired by, you know, this idea of what, what you see when you see a child and how they might approach something. It's just to be sort of absorbed in the process. Mm. 
you know, a certain consolidation, if you like, of my work and yeah. direction of my work, but certainly an evolution. And then also that I would be putting that to good use within, you know, community and culture. I've been listening to you now for, for a good 20 minutes. And one of the things that stood out to me is your reference to your, 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 your twins. Yeah. The, the childhood <laughs> fascination and how that's inspired you. Uh, it seems that was a, a somewhat of a pivotal moment that happened uh, because of that, because you've reflected on it a few times now. Yeah, I, I think so. And I don't think I necessarily realised straight away that, that my having or becoming a mother would be so kind of much a moment in context of my creative self. Um, obviously, I was aware that becoming a mother would change my life in, in certain ways. But what's interesting for me is rather than change me, I think it's taken me back to where I always kind of had been but maybe had denied mm -hmm. so much more back to well what were the things that always you know did drive me as a, as a child like mm -hmm. what were the things that I just loved doing every day and more or less I'd always followed a career that kind of did serve that mm -hmm. but I hadn't maybe quite kind of been prepared to really just drill that little bit deeper it's it's interesting because motherhood is talked about in such sort of often pejorative terms or quite narrow terms and I think there's a, a really important narrative where if if we were to sort of slow down and be able to just be involved in our parenting yeah um you know and I say this as someone who worked full-time with mm -hmm. twins and you know so it's not even necessarily that you can't work and and do this but I think we're often kind of fed lots of myths around what parenting should be what our children should be you know all these things we should do and actually if you just slow down and just be a parent in whatever way suits you yeah. you just begin to notice so much more the most liberating thing is to just parent in the way that's right for you and to notice your child in that and and to see it as quite a reciprocal relationship yes. and you want to um lead by example if yeah. you like and also you don't want your child to be sat there trying to fulfill the dream you had no and so for me i was like hang on a minute i don't want my kid to be thinking they've got to be an artist because i never became an artist kind of thing That's you know sad, sad story. yeah and i think a lot of children do end up trying to fulfill their parents needs that their parent for whatever reason isn't prepared to do and i was like i have to push myself harder and so as a consequence of having children i knew i had to push myself harder to become who i am I want to know more about how you also see the scene of, as you come from an e-commerce digital background, mm -hmm. the scene of technology, social channels, etc., impacting the art scene at large. Um, your own art, but also how we as humans engage with art. Um, and I even think having two kids, it's even more uh, prudent and more um, clear to you how technology is mm -hmm. impacting behaviors in younger generations. So I'd love to get your take on it. You know, if you look at your own art, do you think eventually there will be a... Now, are you going to embed a technical component in what you're doing, do you think? A technology component? Or have you given it any thought? To be honest, I think in a way, from my personal practice at the moment, a lot of what I am doing is actually probably the antidote to the sort of um, engagement that I have with the digital world through yep. my art because I work in um, digital campaigns. Yep. So I work for a digital media business on a brand and creative consultancy that primarily delivers digital and social campaigns works with talent etc etc and it's wonderful but I think for me my art is it's not the opposite of that actually but it is much slower than that and mm -hmm. I think um, I guess if I were to say more broadly where I think technology I think 
for me, maybe there's like three kind of threads. Okay. One is I think that technology, which all of which have a kind of flip side. Yeah, you know? yeah. And I think one is, is that technology and the kind of the absorption of technology, particularly amongst younger people. So I'm like 40. So I'm just at the age where in the UK, I just missed doing IT as a compulsory thing, but yeah. it was starting to kind of trickle in. Yeah. Um, we had quite a kick of it when we were young children with BBC computers and then it all went a bit quiet for a yeah, while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and what I was, I guess what I think is an interesting provocation that has come up is this idea that when everyone can access something, this democracy of, of digital technology, yeah. which is reasonably democratic now, um, not entirely, but reasonably, is, is how the craft becomes more important yeah. of the hand. Yeah. So, for example, handwriting becomes more precious. Drawing becomes more precious. Yeah. Painting becomes more precious. So I think what we'll get is this kind of... <clears throat> There'll be the seam of, you know, artists, I imagine, who will remain in this kind of quite handcrafted, kind of quite tangible space. Yeah. And that will absolutely become and remain precious. And then I think there will be this other space where there are artists who are using technology to explore and potentially create art. Mm -hmm. And they're doing it in a slightly different way because they're already using something to kind of create a lens. So mm -hmm. they're, they're a lens on a lens. Whereas yeah. I think when you're an artist and you're maybe drawing or painting, you're the first lens yeah. you don't add an extra lens yet yeah. but I think actually fundamentally artists are all trying to work out themselves and their connection their connectivity mm -hmm. with the world and mm -hmm. how they're um, relating to the world so yeah. I think the, the kind of the principle of art should should remain the same processing experiencing reflecting back yeah. connecting with others it's just I think there will probably be that in the digital space you have more opportunity for um, immediacy in terms of the connection mm -hmm. The idea of immersive art, augmented art, yep. um, art that could be built through uh, cooperation. But that's not to say you can't do that in the handcrafted space where you could be doing mass murals, for yeah, example. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I, I think there will be, and we've seen it really, we're starting to see it like a, there's definitely a lot more things like street art, but, yep. but the, the value of street art has shifted because it creates a common experience. Yep. So I think experience becomes more important in the art yep. world. And I think technology is part of what's driving that. Mm -hmm. I think democracy becomes more important. I think there is definitely a cultural shift around who actually owns and controls, who's the mouthpiece of the art world. Yes. Um, interestingly, I know lots of artists, younger than I mainly, who are building themselves through Instagram, and they still have the challenge. You know, I think there will be a, there has to be a flip point at some point, a tipping point, but they still have the challenge that when they go to talk to galleries, they're expected to have trained in certain places. Sure. Or, you know, so so we're we're in a, a definitely big transitional shift in that yeah. respect, where we've still got quite an old school framework, but lots of new behaviours. Yes. So I think it it will shift how we might make art, yeah. but it won't necessarily change. I would say what art is for. But I think the other part of what technology will do in the way photography did in the eighteenth nineteenth century. Okay. I always get, I always get yeah. the numbers wrong. Yeah. Yeah, nineteenth century. Yes. <laughs> oh my god, it's, it's pretty accurate. I always get it wrong. Just but when, well, if you think when photography yeah. came in, it was seen as a documentary purpose. So if people like Julia Margaret Cameron were not necessarily recognised as artists, but now Julia Margaret Cameron, for her photography, is absolutely recognised as being an artist. Mm -hmm. So I think there will be a shift in what what our kind of as there's that shift in who controls the art world, there will be a shift in who controls what taste is mm -hmm. because taste is a big part of how art is received. Yes. 
how we as artists expose ourselves i.e like people expect to see much more process how how and do we want to share that much information i find myself sharing an awful lot because i feel like people want to be part of the journey not just see the finished piece but then also it's thinking about that as part of our whole market like we have to think more about marketing ourselves now because as galleries don't necessarily hold all the sway anymore how do we then how do we find a way to market and actually potentially sell our work or you know wherever that ends up and it's it's a similar very similar to what i've seen in my industry around uh print magazines versus digital Mm -hmm. um publishing platforms like actually magazines have absolutely held where they stand for something but the ones that didn't the ones that were just like anything like anything Mm -hmm. else are just failing yeah yeah, yeah. so i think it's the same it's about that preparedness to put yourself out there as yourself let me ask a question on the uh, on the on the platform um, component you just talked about because uh, we have you 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 said publishing uh, great example you know physical uh, digital uh, do you see that there will be the equivalent in in the art world so you will have a a, a physical gallery where you exhibit artwork and you will have a digital gallery that you exhibit artwork in um, and. How do you see that happening at the moment in the industry? I mean, I think I think it's quite interesting, is it? Because if you look at um, things like the Weather Project, even which I know is quite an old example, but it still stands out to me as a brilliant example of art that brings people in who might not ever have looked at art. And I think Tate Modern is really good at kind of creating experiential elements, like the swings outside. And people can say, "Is it art?" Then it's like, well, if you're even talking about it, does it matter? It's a bit like everyone used to talk about whether Harry Potter was a good book or not. It's like, if it gets people reading, doesn't matter. Like, at least get people into that world, create an open door, and then they can start to, mm. like, explore it, you know? And I think I, I, I think human beings need tangible connection. They need physical spaces to go and come together. And even if you look at, like, millennials who are meant to be obsessed with digital, yeah. they love a meetup. They love a gallery space. They love a party. You know, like, they love ways. They're still sticking postcards on their bedroom walls, you yeah. know? And so I think we as humans will always want to physically be together and I think what the best um, examples of what we can do are where we create physical spaces that are augmented uh, and potentially there are things that happen in the online like Mm. sort of like in the internet uh, you know social kind of internet type spaces Mm. (laughs) sounds so old-fashioned to say that way oh my god but you know what I mean like in the kind of in the uh, the virtual spaces I should say I think I think that we would create opportunities for people to come in that world through the virtual spaces. There's always an open door, even Mm -hmm. if they can't make it to that physical space. Mm -hmm. Even people like Bill Viola or Tracy Emin, people who really like provoke a reaction and a conversation are quite modern, Mm -hmm. even if their work ostensibly looks quite traditional now in some ways. I know they're not the most traditional examples, but I think it's the artists who are, are, are kind of provocative, who stand for something, who can create conversations, because even those conversations are important. Okay. That's why TV still works, right? People still want to all be talking about Fleabag or all be talking about Strictly Come Dancing, sure, sure. because it creates a kind of community conversation yeah. that can happen in real life and in physical and in virtual space as well. So would it be fair to say you think there will be a merger of the two... Um gallery spaces if you will the digital the virtual and the physical and that's going to be a, a ongoing experience yeah i think it'll be an ongoing exploration because yeah. you could equally have a gallery that has absolutely no virtual element yes. to it 
but it creates a contained space that still offers an experience. I think experience will become more and more important. If you think about like Yayoi Kusami's uh, exhibitions she's been doing at the Miro Gallery, like every single one has sold out yeah. because she creates these very shareable moments, yeah. but also very immersive experience. You're yeah. in, you're absolutely within her spaces. You can't not be there. Yeah. But they're also very beautiful. It did feel almost set up for that purpose. Yeah, yeah. Like, let's both be here, but also be outside of here. Interesting. Um, but then I think some will be only in a space because as humans, I think sometimes we just need that stillness. Yes. So I think it will just make exhibition designers in terms of galleries yeah. think more carefully about exhibition design. Like you can't, like where the white box, for example, was seen as very dem democratic and egalitarian and modern, like what, 30, 40 years ago yeah. now we're now rethinking again what's the experience of a gallery to make it democratic because democracy is becoming more and more important in art i think um so i think there'll be a big and that you're you're seeing it already with the tate is good at it um i do think the vna is pretty good at it um uh even the, the white cube and the way they put things together yeah. you know they, they create experiences um that's becoming really important so I completely agree, and I think it's a great observation. And I think that there's one more question I want to have um, before we go towards the end of the interviews. One more question, which is um, is looking at the creation of a piece of art, not by human hands, but through machine, mm -hmm. so algorithmic. Mm -hmm. um, we're seeing a rise of it. You know, we're seeing, if you want to call it artificial uh, generated artwork. Mm -hmm. um, and I want to know your take on that. Do you see that that Let's now it's a piece of code that creates a purely digital piece of art that, that might be uh, circulating different visuals on, a, on an eye, uh, you know, a touch screen on, on the wall, for example. I'm keen to get your take on the different pieces of art. Do you think there is a difference between a artificially generated visual versus a human generated visual? Yeah, I mean, I... I I, I think in terms of uh, or, uh, you know artificially created art and and whether there is a difference between a human created visual and a, and a AI created visual, I would say that inherently there is a difference. I'm not deeply involved in the AI world, so I don't know where you know robotics and AI could go. And I know there's some theories that it could go incredibly far in terms of getting close to how the human mind works. I think I think the reason there is a difference is because humans are processing a human experience whereas even if AI was processing its experience it would still be AI experience it would never be a human's experience and I think only we can only have our unique human experience mm -hmm. so even if you were to say AI could replicate a human mind it can't replicate being a human mm. So I'm not saying it wouldn't be valuable or interesting, but it wouldn't necessarily connect with humans in quite the same way. It would be more like an object of fascination than um, understanding, yeah. potentially. And I think that... Um, so I think that... I mean, it would be fascinating. We would be intrigued by it. We would definitely come and see it and, yeah. and try and work out what we thought. Yeah. But I think what would be missing would be the connection of human experience that yeah. you get when you see a piece of art and you're like, wow. That, that makes sense to me. There's something in that that gets me, you know. And I think, um, I think it, I think there's just something really different in the way the human brain works and the way AI, even in the way it's set up. So it's like, 
And it's possibly in the hands of how people are developing the AI, not necessarily just the AI. So if you think about what the brain is, we always see it as being this incredibly important thing. And obviously it is. I'm not negating the importance of the brain. But if you think about AI, it feels like it's very obsessed with the brain. And actually, if you think about as a human being, our whole body is a receptor for our world. So the things we smell, things we touch, the things we see, the things we hear... Um, the sort of the shiver down the spine moments, yes. the kind of that that moment when you touch a person and you realize that you're connected, you know, like all our brain is actually doing is processing that. Mm. The brain doesn't invent all of that. The brain is one part of, you know, we have like, I would say, you know, a sort of instinctive gut or central point, and then we have our heart instincts and we have our head instincts. Yeah. And I think if AI were to recognize that humanity of the humans that it's trying to dive into, potentially it could be much closer to a human experience. But I think AI in its nature is quite obsessed with the brain being the controller, not Mm -hmm. the brain being the processor. Right. And I think that art is a whole body, whole mind, whole soul response. Mm -hmm. It's not just what your head, in fact, if anything, you try and switch off what your head is telling you. Because <laughs> that's the thing that holds yeah. you back. So it's it's kind of a reverse behavior yep. in that respect. Okay. And I, I think it would be fascinating, but not necessarily connecting yeah. in the same way. Yeah. Um, but for sure, I think we would be, as humans, we would be fascinated to see, because it, it for us, AI is a measure of our potential of invention. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I would never see AI replace anything. And actually, I would say this across the board. Like mm-hmm. people worry about, will humans replace, will hu- robots replace humans in yeah. the way that 200 years ago, we thought weaving looms were going to replace humans. Yeah. And 50 years ago, we thought computers were going to replace humans. And actually, what the truth is, is as algorithms have shifted the mundane tasks away from us as humans, it's unlocked our cultural potential and our creative potential. So I would say, for example, and, and maybe this does come back to having observe, observed my children as well, is f- for me, the most important thing we can do as humans is to be able to think with vulnerability or to be, actually not think. But the most important thing that we as humans can can do is to, to kind of create and be vulnerable and be lateral and allow the weird thoughts in because mm-hmm. that's the thing I don't think AI can do yep. I can't allow the weird thought in because it's trying to make the weird thought, thought fit into a bucket and so I would I have no concerns like that around will I be replaced by a robot in anything I do actually um, other than hopefully the really boring stuff um, because humans just are weird yeah. we're just really flawed and we're a bit fucked up yeah. and we, we are idiosyncratic and so actually that's what makes what we do joyous you know i love that and i think that leads me to the final bit of this interview it's been a pleasure uh and it's I, been fun I, talking. it's been good so far <laughs> uh, the last bit um to close off the uh, the entire uh, interview is a piece of advice so as always uh, i want to know what you in the spirit of wanting to enable other humans to unlock their creativity what would the piece of advice that you give to a budding artist out there to get to where you are now I think to, if I were to give one piece of advice to an artist wanting to sort of make their way in the world, I would 
say, go for it. And I would say, you know, create for yourself your own um, framework of what life should look like. And from that, take the headlines or a checklist of the values that you hold dear. Because as soon as you're able to really understand what for you um, a good life looks like, you're able to not be distracted by what everyone else is trying to tell you. Beautiful. Great ending to the, to the interview. Thank you very much. Take my own advice. <laughs> Thanks. Hey everyone, Hansa, the creator of the show. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, if you want more, just uh, click next and uh, enjoy the next episode. Um, I also want to give a big thank you to the Wimbledon Art Studios for making this happen. Uh, thank you for the collaboration and uh, enjoy. Enjoy.